Please turn to the fifth chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes, the fifth chapter. From chapter 5, beginning at verse 8, our text is the verses from 8 to 20. Once upon a time, a famous queen went to visit the king of Solomon, King Solomon, and she had heard so many stories about him. She didn't believe what she half of what she heard. She knew he was a great architect because she no doubt had seen some of the buildings he had designed and built, and that he was a horticulturist. It was obvious that. These beautiful gardens and wonderful meadows that uh, existed were a part of what he was able to accomplish. He was a gifted writer, she knew, a prolific poet. He had written a thousand songs and composed them. He was a, an authority in the natural sciences and a magnificent diplomat, but she was still suspicious about this man and all that she'd heard about him. And so she came to his land to visit, and she watched and observed the, the proceedings, the things that went on. She talked, she talked to his servants. There is a historical account of her visit. It's found in 1 Kings chapter 10. And when she saw this country that was dripping with opulence and luxury, she was amazed. They ate out of pure gold and vessels. And when they drank, they drank out of vessels of pure gold. Silver was not even popular. It was a kingdom of gold. And she saw his treasure, the wealthiest man who has ever lived. And the scripture says in that historical account in 1 Kings 10, that when she saw this magnificent stairway and this marvelous palace, she had no spirit within her. It, it means that she was absolutely breathless. She had, she had, her breath was taken when she saw the wealth of it. She was so stirred by the beauty and the wealth and the opulence and the luxury of this man's residence that she herself gave him talents of gold equivalent of three and a half to four million dollars. In the 14th chapter of the book of 1 Kings, chapter 10, it indicates that his annual um, increase or reception of gold alone was worth $20 million. That's just gold. And she saw his treasury. And he had this summer uh, cabin. Now, out in this uh, summer cabin, he didn't just stock it with, you know, the things that you don't use in your house, old um, towels and old uh, pottery that you know that has no matching set because out in his summer house the, the, the vessels were pure gold that they ate from and drank from and she came to Solomon the king breathless and made this statement you've heard it before the half has never been told I was suspicious of what I had heard and I really didn't believe what I had heard. 
But now I want you to know that I, the half of what you possess and what it is like here has never been told. Now you and I cannot imagine wealth like that, riches. This man was more wealthy than any man who has ever lived. And if he were alive today, he would be on the cover of Time magazine. He would be written up in Fortune magazine. And everybody would have an ear to listen to what he said. As a matter of fact, if Solomon were speaking in this church tonight, we, would not, we wouldn't have enough places for people to sit. And if we were to announce that this man were going to come to the pulpit of First Baptist Church and talk about money, about how to acquire it and how to handle it, and what it's all about to be wealthy, this financial genius... There wouldn't be enough people, there wouldn't be enough seats for the people. We'd have to have him several times to get the people in. But the fact is that you and I have the privilege of looking over his shoulder as he writes his journal. And this is what it is. Ecclesiastes is the journal of this man. And when he talks about wealth and when he talks about money, it's worth listening to him and, it's, and, 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 and to see this journal, what he says about money is worthy to, to heed and to, and to observe. And there's a marvelous statement about this man's wealth, about money in, in essence, about money in its nature, and what it does and what it means, is found in the passage verses 8 through 20. Now that passage is divided into three parts. In verses 8 through 12, he gives three proverbial principles with regard to money that every generation ought to heed, especially those of us who are covetous and greedy, those of us who want to be rich, to be powerful, who would like to have money. Verses 13 through 17, he gives two grievous evils that always accompany it. And I've found that word, I didn't coin that phrase, grievous evils. It comes right out of the text, it's Solomon's words. And then verses 18 through 20, the conclusion, what he calls good and fitting hints to claim and to stake your life upon. So first of all, these proverbial principles with regard to money. The first is found in verses 8 and 9. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the providence, do not be shocked at the sight. Don't be shocked by the fact that there's going to be oppression. And it is true that you have a middle class, but the fact is you have people who are oppressed by the rich, people who are oppressed and intimidated by the wealthy. Don't be surprised, he said at that. For one official watches over another official, and there are high official, higher officials over them. It sounds just like it was written in our time, doesn't it? After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. Principle number one. The rich tend to take charge and their power tends to intimidate the poor. For the rich become the lawmakers. That's a fact. 
As a matter of fact, I've heard it said many, many times today in order to succeed as a, in, in the body politic, you have to be rich and wealthy. And the rich are the people who become the lawmakers, who make the rules, who design the parameters, who call the shots. And it is the wealthy he's saying, and, and it's just as relevant as if, it the, as if the print were still wet. They, they develop this, they're the ones who, who make the red tape, and the ta- red tape gets so thick that the voice of the poor is stilled and, and dimmed, and the, and the poor have no voice, and this terrible bureaucracy is developed, and there's one official who oversees another official who oversees another official, and when you have this bureaucracy, then you can pass the buck and nobody takes responsibility and there's this red tape and this bureaucracy and there's this power structure of the wealthy and the poor is lost in it and he's intimidated by it. I remember when I first moved to Durant, I visited in a little house in the southeast part of this town. And I listened to this woman talk about the rich people who lived in the northwest part of Durant. I lived out there. I live out there. She's talking about me, and I, you know, I'm broke all the time. But she perceived me to be rich. And she perceived everybody who lived on the west side of, of, of First and on the north side of Maine to be rich, called all the shots in this city. And she was intimidated. It was obvious that she's intimidated by it and, and harassed by it. And she said, Why, where in the world would we ever, how would we ever have a voice in what goes on in the city of Durant? She, talks about, she talked about all the rich and the fat cats who live in the neighborhood where I live. And I thought as I left there, that, that, that must be the perception of so many people that they have no voice and they're never heard. And they're intimidated by the wealth they perceive us to possess. Much like in the 18th and 19th century, where, who would ever stop and listen to a slave? Who would care about their needs? Now he says in verse 9 that there has to be leadership and we recognize that the king who cultivates the land is essential and important, but that king who is wealthy must be on the guard against oppression. The second principle, proverbial principle, is found in verse 10. Look at it. He who loves money, now notice, it is he who loves money and not he who has money. Mark that. This is not an attack, this is not a rebuke to the man who has money. It is a rebuke to the man who loves it. And there are some who are obsessed with it and who love it and who want it and who desire it and who have made it their God who has not money. This is not an attack against the person who has it. It's an attack against the person who loves it. And he says this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. Second principle, that greed and materialism have no built-in safeguards or satisfying limits. I'm going to repeat that. Somebody was talking to a friend of mine the other day who's from another church and watches television. He said, the, the, your preacher has a speech impediment. <laughs> well, that's true, probably. 
Well, he said, well, he doesn't either. He said, yeah, he does. He repeats. Well, I'm going to repeat for emphasis. Greed and materialism have no built-in safeguards or satisfying limits. Greed and materialism never know the day when they can say it's enough. Greed and materialism never have enough. It never comes to the place where we say, that's all I want. For money never brings contentment. And never, money never brings satisfaction. And it never satisfies desire. I was amused as I watched them interview that person who won the lottery not long ago. $20 million. Every night when the doorbell rings, I hope it's Ed McMahon. <laughs> 20 million. And I was amused as that person said, when, the, when asked about the lottery, said, oh, we're going to keep on playing the lottery. We, we want to win this thing again. It's never enough. For greed and materialism have no built-in safeguards or satisfying limits. Third principle is found in verses 11 and 12. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? What he's saying, this is not the principle, what he's saying is this, that when somebody who is nobody becomes somebody, he just gathers this entourage around him. And when you see somebody who comes from nowhere to somewhere, it just seem, he just seems to gather up this entourage of people who hang on him. Heavyweight boxers are examples of that. And here is this poor, ignorant man, Mike Tyson, who was nobody, almost illiterate. And suddenly he became, because of his... God-given skill and ability, his, his boxing skill, he was catapulted into enormous wealth and fame. And there's this, these parasites that have, that have just gathered around him and cling to him, and everybody wants a piece of him. That's his own statement. And I'm thinking about this boy who grew up in Mississippi. Poor, not Lee Johnson, poor boy in Mississippi. Had nothing. And he just burst on the scene with this new kind of sound called country and western rock and roll. And he shook himself, you know, it was weird, but he just was catapulted into fame, became the, the highest paid entertainer in the history of entertainment. He's been dead for years, but last year this dead man made $15 million. And all of a sudden there was this entourage of people that just glued themselves to Elvis Presley so that they somehow could suck off of his wealth and, and feed off of his wealth. That's what this is talking about. And so he says in verse 12, The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. It's not that he has, doesn't have enough to eat. He has enough, just don't have sleep. Now here's the principle. With increased money and in increased possessions, 
comes an accelerated number of people who worry us. This hard man with a hard hat, he don't worry about anything. He gets up and goes to work, comes home at night, and sits in front of the television and eats a chicken bone and, you know, iced tea or cold beer, whatever he does, and just, you know, next morning. So here's this entourage of people that attach themselves to the, to the wealthy. You've seen that, haven't you? It just infuriates me when I see that. Um, people trying to attach themselves like parasites and, and pretend that they want to love this person. Now I want you to turn with me to the book of Proverbs chapter 19. Now you know that the author of the book of Ecclesiastes and the author of the book of Proverbs is one and the same man. I want you to read with me in Proverbs 19, 4 through 6. Listen to this. Wealth adds many friends, indeed. Underline friends. It's not friends as you need friends or want friends. It's friends, fair weather. Wealth adds many friends, but the poor man is separated from his friend. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who tells lies will not escape. Look at this. Many will entreat the favor of a generous man, and every man is a friend to him who gives gifts. Isn't that amazing? And the author of the book of Ecclesiastes is goes to, tries to go to sleep at night and the reality of that, that all these people who gather around him really don't really care about him. They just want his gifts and they want his money. And I found an interesting passage of Scripture and I want you to turn to it. It's the 22nd chapter of Isaiah. Please turn to that. The 22nd chapter of Isaiah. And there's this king here in this passage by the name of Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, is made king. Verse 23 of chapter 22, look at it. He's talking about Eliakim, the king of Judah. And he says, I will drive him like a peg in a firm place. Now if you've got a kitchen with a pegboard, you know those pegs you put there and you hang kitchen utensils on it? That's what he's talking about. And he said, I'm going to drive Eliakim like a firm peg in the pegboard. And he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. Look here. I love it. And so they will hang on him all the glory of his father's house. Offspring and issue, all the least of the vessels, from bowls to all the jars. They're going to hang everything in the kitchen on him. In that day, watch this, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg driven in a firm place will give way. It will even break off and fall, and the load hanging on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. Tremendous statement. Now here are these people who are hanging on to the wealthy, and they're putting everybody in, from the kitchen sink hangs on him and they want to be around him because he has money, he has influence, and he has power. And he said one day the whole peg will come down 
and everybody with it. Proverbial principles. God talks straight to the money mad. And Ecclesiastes, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, says to, queen, to the queen of Sheba, you say the half has never been told, that's right. I look happy and I look successful and everybody wants a piece of me, but the half hasn't been told. You don't know the half of it. We know the half of it. No. I have that two grievous sins in verses 13 through 17. The first is found in verses 13 through 15. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun. Here it is. Riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him as he had come naked from his mother's womb. So he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hands. I don't know how many funerals I've preached. I know that I've preached almost a thousand weddings and I know I've preached more funerals than weddings. I have not seen anybody in any of the thousand, over a thousand funerals that I've preached. I've never seen anybody take what he had with him. And somebody said, I've never seen a hearse with a U-Haul trailer attached to it. I mean, you just don't, you, it don't, it doesn't happen. Now here's the grievous evil. Watch this, number one. The grievous evil is this. Those who have clutched can easily crash. Those who have clutched can easily crash. And, and the scene is this. The scene is a man who gathers this, accumulates this wealth, like the rich man tearing down his barns to build greater. And all of a sudden, it all comes crashing down, and he has nothing left. Now, with your little finger, turn to Proverbs 23. Because the author of the book of Ecclesiastes is going to give us a little illustration. I mean, he wrote both books, so he ought to have that, that privilege. Blow the dust off chapter 3, and let's read verses 1 through 5. When you sit down to dine with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat. I love it, if you're a man of great appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for it is deceptive food. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it's gone. It's like a mirage. You ever notice that? You see this out there, and you set your eyes on it, and you go for it, and when you get there, it's gone. He said, it, don't set your eyes on it. It's gone. Look, for wealth certainly makes itself wings. And I can say amen to that. <laughs> it has wings. Like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. It's, you can clutch it, but it's gone. It's like cotton candy. It's like bubbles. It just has no substance. For he who clutches easily crashes. It's amazing how fast it gets away. Grievous evil that it has no permanent promise. 
Second evil is found in verse 16. And this also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man born, thus will he die. It's amazing how Solomon brings us back to the grave. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Second grievous evil is this. That those who have lived high often die hard. And, and, and he just disappeared from public view. He was married to a woman by the name of Jean Peters, one of the most beautiful women that lived at that time. But they never were seen in public. There was never a photograph taken of Howard Hughes and Jean Peters. She lived in this $1,000 a day bungalow in Beverly Hills and, and later in Bel Air, and they just would meet occasionally. And he became more reclusive, almost to the point of being a lunatic. He had a beard down to his waist and hair down to the center of his back. He never cut his fingernails, and his toenails grew out to the, to the they were like corkscrews. He, he made a statement one time, he said, Every man has his price, or a man like me could not exist. And they don't worry he was half the time. In Nicaragua, in South America, in Las Vegas, he just would disappear for months and even years. And then he died. And when he died, he was like some kind of a hermit. He, those who buried him said he, he was, it, was, it was the weirdest thing. He was filthy and he, and he had his loathsome smell. He never took a bath. And, and this rich man who had governments, the destinies of governments at his command died hard. And when they found Elvis Presley, the richest entertainer in the history of entertainment, he was in the bathroom with his head in the toilet. Well, oftentimes those who live high die hard. Grievous, grievous evil. Now, there are some gifts worth claiming. On the back of your book, on the back of your sheet, let's look at these. There are four. Hang in here with me. Number one, put this down. First, claim the gift, verse 18, claim the gift of the enjoyment of life. Claim the gift of the enjoyment of life. It is a gift from God. Life is a gift from God. Word came to a family that, that their son was probably killed in Vietnam. Oh, did you hear that a boy was on the manifest of that flight 103 and they called his parents and told him that he was dead and two years later he called his father and said, hey, it's me, I'm alive. That's amazing. People heard that their son was probably killed in Vietnam. Three days later, word came that he indeed was not dead, but missing in action. Now here's the difference. Here's a boy at one time his family thought was dead. The next word came that he was missing in action. 
and they rejoiced and they celebrated and they thanked God because they thought he was still alive. Life is a gift. Claim the gift of life. Refuse to attach yourself to possessions. Find pleasure in the simple things, in the simple things. Look at verse 18. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting. To eat, to drink, to enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is a reward. It's a gift. Let me ask you to do this. Go back and think this week, this week, and you're making your resolutions. Go back and think of the things that made you happy as a child and do them for one month. Go back and think of the things that you did as a child that made you happy and do them for one month. I was just sitting in my office and I was giving a little thought to this sermon and I, I thought, well, Tidwell, what are, what are some of those things? I started to remember those things as I used to do as a kid that made me happy. Simple things. Do them for one month. See if, see if it'll make a difference. Okay, second, verse 19. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. Second, claim the gift of fulfillment in your work. It may not be greener on the other side of the fence. Now let me, let, me, let, me, let me give you a little bit of a clue as to how you can find joy in your work. Here it is. Use your time for the glory of God. Use your time for the glory of God. I heard a guy say the other day, some guy, maybe some athlete or whatever, he said, whatever I do in life is going to be fun because I'm doing it for the glory of God. Now when, you, when, you, when you're doing all that boring stuff, you know, like washing dishes and punching a clock and you know, all that grind that comes in the daily routine. Do it for the glory of God for one month. Give yourself generously. Give generously of your time to the glory of God. See if it'll make a difference. Third, claim the gift of contentment in your heart, verse 20. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. I love that statement. God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Claim the gift of contentment in your heart. Find ways to discover contentment. The half has not been told. Solomon might be saying, look, it may, not, it may look like I'm happy, but the half hasn't been told. I'm not fulfilled. 
You probably have not read Tolstoy, much of Tolstoy, neither have I. But you may have seen the movie, if you could endure the four-hour movie, War and Peace. But you do know that Tolstoy was this great Russian writer. You may not know the misery and the, and, the, and, the, and the tragedy of his life that ended in 1910. This man, because of his um, literary skills, became the idol of the Russians. And, and he was not happy. And, and he tried every vice and every sin imaginable, and it just made him more unhappy until he went into a deep mental depression and thought about suicide. He was so suicidal that, that he, he had this rope in his room that was an old-fashioned fire escape, and at night he'd put that rope in a closet and lock it and give the key to a friend because he was afraid that in the long nights of sleeplessness he might be tempted to take that rope and hang himself. And Tolstoy began to take long walks in the woods and the fields, and he watched the Ru Russian peasants who grubbed and scrubbed in conditions worse than slavery. And he said, I observed that they fed themselves on bread that I didn't have. And he saw that, in these, that these Russian peasants had a peace that, they didn't, that he didn't have, that he had been denied. So he said, I sought to discover and I found that it was the uniting of the peasant's soul with God. Now that lady who's watching, I'm about to repeat. It was the, the secret was the uniting of the peasant's soul with God. He said, so I set out to find God. And this is what happened, quote, One day God came to me in the woods, and suddenly my mind became pure and cool, as if I had been delivered from a great weight. There was now a deep song in my soul. I discovered the formula for life. And later Tolstoy used this formula in a simple yet profound and classic utterance, to know God is to live. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you, for to know God is to live. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we have meat to eat that they know not of, and that there is a fulfillment and a joy and a recovery that is found when one places at the center of his being, life, and existence, Jesus Christ, to know God, to know him is to live and I pray Father that those who listen by means of television and out in this congregation tonight that 
we all shall come to understand that there is a wealth that makes man rich and there is a wealth that makes man poor. And I pray tonight, Father, that those of us who hear would understand the difference. And through our faith in Jesus Christ, make that discovery that brings coolness to the soul and the release of the burden. For I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Now I think it might be a good idea just to have one stanza of invitation for those of us who need to publicly respond to God's prompting. So you come if God leads you while we stand to sing.